Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. Matthew chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 1. Matthew chapter 2 is the story of what we call the wise men. The New American Standard Version will call them magi. That is literally the word, the plural of the word magos, which we get our word magician from it. They're like astrologers, but they're a combination really of scientists of astrology or astronomy and astrologers. They were keen on the movement of the planets and the stars, and they believed that there was also a theological message in all of that as well. There was quite a group of them that many of them lived in the Persian area, which would have been uh, modern-day Iraq or Iran. And so Jesus is going to teach us some things today from his word, and he's going to use these men. Uh, just for a test, how many wise men were there? Seven? Oh, I thought Ursula was on to something there. You, you've been around here too long, hadn't you? We say three all the time. There's so much about the wise men. It, it's where really life imitates art. You've heard that expression before. So on Christmas cards, we have three wise men. They did bring three gifts, but it never said there was three of them. More than likely, there were far more than just three. We also have them riding camels. We have no idea what they rode. They came 800 miles to get to Bethlehem, most likely. 800 miles. If you did 20 miles a day, uh, it would take you, care of the 7 divided by 4, you get 3.14 pi. That'd take you 40 days. Just, it's a gift. Uh, we, we know very, very little about them. And, and if they did ride flea-infested camels in the heat with the kind of clothes that we put on them, they had to stop for some dry cleaning as well somewhere along the way. Um, we know very little about them. But God drew them to Bethlehem to see himself. So let's read together. Matthew chapter one, uh, 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying. I'll pause again. Jesus, we think at this time, may be about two years old. That's another thing we do. We have the wise men showing up right after the shepherds. It's like the shepherds had a 5.30 appointment, and then 7.30, the wise men were to come in or whatever. Jesus is probably about two years old. And the reason we think that it's because when Herod has the babies in Bethlehem killed, he orders that all of them that are two years old and younger, uh, if they're male babies, they need to die. He is trying to kill them. Since we know Herod the Great died in 4 
B.C., we think then that Jesus was probably born about 6 B.C., but again, we're not sure. I'm just trying to be honest about some of the things that we don't know. Where is he who, are they saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the Great heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, well, these are the chief priests and scribes now, in Bethlehem of Judea. There was a Bethlehem in Galilee, still is, uh, but this was Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what was written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That was written nearly 800 years before Jesus was born. And then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I may come and worship him. And hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. If we had gone back to the previous chapter, we would have read a rather profound verse at the very end in verse 25 of Matthew 1. It says that Joseph gave him the name Jesus. There's a lot wound up in that because for Joseph to give him a name, it means that Joseph has accepted Jesus as his son. And for Joseph to give him the name Jesus, he has given him the name Yahweh saves. So he knows that, yeah, this is not from my loins or physically I'm not his father but he is my son. So Joseph accepts Jesus as his son, and in a blessed irony, his son accepts Joseph as his child. So we have a Savior now. We had heard one was coming. Isaiah told us about 800 years prior that he would be here, but Boy, it's been a while. In the song, the 400 years of silence, that was between the Old and the New Testament. We have nothing written during that period of time. It's the intertestamental period. And 
So there's a whole lot of doubt. Just like nowadays, is Jesus really coming back? Is any of this real? Is, is, is all of this just kind of faded into the past? And should we not be kind of thinking a different way nowadays? But I can tell you this, and I, I'll read Micah. Micah was written about 800 years prior as well. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, that's another name for Bethlehem. Bethlehem, by the way, means house of bread. Beit or Beth always means house of something. And so Bethlehem is the word for house of bread. Very fitting. He says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. you such a small little town. From you one will go forth for me to be the ruler in Israel, and his goings forth are from long ago for the days, or from the days of eternity. He was prophesied in the Old Testament, but even before all of that, Jesus Christ, he was creating the universe before that he existed eternally and, and all of that. So we now have the Savior. We have the Son of God, Son of Man. He is now among us. And so that, that, that is a powerful thought. Alfred Eidersheim was a, was a Jew that converted to Christianity. And one of the things that uh, Eidersheim did that, that caused him to convert to Christianity from Judaism, he said that he found about 456 verses in the Old Testament that contain some type of prophecy about Jesus Christ. And Eidersheim went on to say that there were at least 300 prophecies in those verses that Jesus fulfilled every one of them in his earthly life. And that kind of thinking brought Eidersheim to a knowledge, a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But we have some other wise men that as they sought the truth, it led them to Jesus Christ as well. Whenever you seek the truth and you seek it with all your heart, then it leads you to Christ. That's how they wound up traveling some 800 miles. You got chief priests and scribes, they are a little over five miles away from Bethlehem and they don't even go there. They could care less. Oh, they can quote from the Old Testament word for word, prophecies from 800 years past. So they're the ones that have the knowledge of the Scriptures and they have all of this understanding of what the Messiah is to be and where He's to be born and all of that. But they have no heart whatsoever to go and worship Him. So I want to take a look this morning of what kind of worship is fit for a king. And I want us to look at these who were drawn all the way from Persia to come and worship him. What kind of worship do we need to try to bring when we come to <coughs> worship God? First of all, worship that's fit for a king, according to them, it's going to be intentional. As a matter of fact, in verse 2, it says, where is he, they ask? who has been born king of the Jews, for we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. That's why we are here. 
And I'll tell you why that's important. If you think about it in the context of what people say nowadays in the modern world, it's amazing to me that the wise men even stay. Because here they show up to worship Jesus Christ, and the first people they meet are hypocrites. They're church hypocrites. They're chief priests and they're scribes. The scribes know everything. The chief priests think they know everything. And then on top of that, they meet another guy named Herod, who is a lying politician. Is it, That may be redundant. I don't know. But he's a lying politician. And he is using the Jewish faith. Herod the Great was part Jewish. He was Idumean, which meant his Jewish lineage didn't come from Jacob. But do you remember Jacob's brother? Remember Esau from Hehaw? Yep, that's him. And so the Idumeans' bloodline is, is found in Herod. So the war between Jacob and Esau is really still going on in their descendants right here in Bethlehem as Herod tries to attack the Lord and Savior with death. I can just tell you, you got to come intentionally to worship God. If you don't, And I can tell you, when you meet the Herods, and we've got them nowadays, and when you meet the hypocrites, and when you meet the know-it-alls, and you meet all these people that they aren't really serious about what they're doing, man, it will really have an effect on you. But if your intention is to worship God, and you really don't care what everybody around you is thinking or doing, and you realize you did not come for them, but you came to meet with God, then you will get through it quite nicely. Otherwise, you can leave and go home and get on Facebook and just hammer us and and tell the world what a bunch of hypocrites there are at church. let, Let me just tell you something. If you quit everything in life, where you find that there are people there that are not serious about what they're doing, you will do very little in life. You know, there are things that I really enjoy. I I, I love bass fishing, but, man, I can go to the lake and I'll see people with nice boats, but they're not serious about bass fishing. Man, they got chicken livers on. They're down there catfishing and some nasty mess like that. And, and some of them are just lying out in the sun baking. And, and man, it's a wonder I don't just load my boat and say, I've had enough of this. These places full of hypocrites. They don't, they're not serious about catching these large mouths like I am. But I don't care what they do. Matter of fact, I'm kind of glad they are laying out in the sun. They're out of my way. And it's the same way with everything else. I hunt. I enjoy doing that. But there are a lot of people that are not really serious about hunting. Uh, I got a buddy of mine. I wished he was here. A lot of you have met him already. If he comes, I'm going to tell it again. But, man, he hates cold weather, and that's when you hunt. He and I went out of town one time, rented a room in a hotel, hunting out of state, and got up the next morning, and he didn't go. He didn't go because it was cold. I'm like, man, you got to get serious, buddy. It's a wonder I hadn't quit hunting. Just wrap my gun around the post and say I've had enough people claim to be hunters. And they get up and a little bit of 14-degree weather and a 25-mile-an-hour wind is enough to keep them in the bed. I've never seen the beat in my life. I can tell you, you will find insincerity everywhere you go. 
And if you want to let it get on your nerves at church, you can. But if you come here and say, I came today to worship God. And what other people do is their business. What they think of me is none of my business. I don't care. I came to worship God. And it is kind of amazing that God is going to use pagans. I mean, we had peasants who were the shepherds. Now we have pagans who are the wise men, and God is going to use them to teach us how to worship Him. The simplicity of of their thinking, they're naive, they know very little about what they're doing. They did meet with the experts over at Herod's place, the chief priest and all of that, but they know very little about what they're doing. But they have been drawn by the power and miraculous work of God, and they have come to worship Him. I can just tell you, you have to make it intentional. And parents, let me tell you this. You can bring your kids and we'll teach them. We have some great teachers. They do a great job. We'll teach them about Jesus. You can bring them on Wednesday nights and we'll teach them about the Lord. We'll teach them all kind of things. The one thing we can't teach them, though, is that serving God is important. And that worshiping Him is a priority. You have to teach them that. You have to teach them that you have to make him important in their mind. And when I did the worldview study with the youth, I told them, I said, I'm not nearly as worried about uh, you leaving here one day and graduating from high school and going off and becoming an atheist as I am worried about you just growing up and God not mattering to you. For him to just be something that if you have time for him, you, you, you there, you focus on him. But I can just tell you, parents, you have to teach your children that God and worshiping Him is important. Otherwise, head knowledge will never matter a bit in the world. In, in, in apologetic terms, we say that our problem is not epistemological, but it's ontological. And those are two big old words, but epistemology is a study of how we know things. Ontology is, is how we are created, and it has to do with our existence. And what I'm saying with that statement is, it's not that we just don't know enough. I've never had anybody yet in any apologetic class come up to me afterwards and say, Mike, I want to get saved, preacher, because when you proved that subatomic particles could not create themselves, nor could gravity bring itself about to bring those subatomic particles together to create the universe. I said, right then, I want to get right with God. Never happens. It's not that we don't know enough. It's that we don't want to. I've seen more than one time when Dr. Frank Turk, I watch a lot of his stuff, read a lot of his book. At the end of his session, sometimes he'll have question and answer. And when people are really arguing with him, he'll look at them and say, if I could prove to you that Christianity is true, would you become a Christian? He says, every one of them say no. It's not that we don't know enough. It's that we just don't think it's that important. These poor old wise men are wise scientifically, but theologically they're the dumbest guys in town. 
but they have come to worship the Savior of the world. It's intentional. It will also be expensive. Expensive. I, I hear, I see this thing posted a lot, and I see signs everywhere. Salvation is still free no matter what the economy is doing. I'm not sure I like the idea that salvation is free because you got to realize somebody paid for it. Jesus Christ paid for it. That's what redemption is. Somebody pays the price for a slave to be set free. That is called redemption. That is what happened to me. But I, it, it goes over well in our world today because we talk about, you know, debt relief and, and, and we talk about uh, student loans and all that kind of stuff. And our world is ripe for the idea that, hey, something can be free. And, and why not just say it's free and, and nobody has to pay for it. Somebody has to pay for it. But Christ paid for it for us. He came, gave his life, and died for us. So me becoming a Christian will cost me nothing. But being a Christian will cost me everything. It's, it's like as a pastor, of course, you know I've done weddings before. I had honestly rather just poke myself in the face with a nice pick. But I will do a wedding now and then. It, weddings are just tough. They're just, there's a lot of ceremony going on and somebody forgets to sing and you got a young un running around dropping flowers all over the place and a nothing behind that one that's doing no telling what. And, and it's just crazy. But they'll ask me about what does it cost to get married. And I tell them, look, I don't charge anything. I don't charge anything, but one of the things that I hope they will do is come for the counseling, otherwise I don't do the wedding. But when they come for the counseling, I, I try to reiterate to them that the wedding will cost you very little as far as I'm concerned. I don't even charge. Getting married is easy. Being married is where the sacrifice comes in. Six months in when you're thinking, man, Instead of that big old cake, I wish we'd have bought a washing machine. You know, that kind of common sense doesn't dawn on you when you're in love. <laughs> you're thinking about other things. But I can just tell you, folks, that being a Christian is, is expensive. And worshiping God, first of all, it takes some time. These guys came all the way from the east. I've already told you it took weeks of travel for them to get there. Also, the treasure they bought, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They brought something when they come. They did not just come empty-handed. And so here's another great point. When you come to worship God, bring something with you. And we're not talking about your checkbook necessarily, but, but, but bring it anyway. It's okay. It, that may be part of it. But bring something, an open mind, a willing heart. Bring some brokenness with you. Bring a willingness to change with you. If you don't bring something with you when you come to worship God, you'll bring nothing and you will leave with absolutely nothing. Man, Jesus, boy, he was really crazy about people that would come and bring something that the world thought was insignificant. In Mark chapter 12, that's where a lady came in and put two little copper coins in the plate. Those little copper coins were 164th of a denarius. And a denarius was a day's wage. So 164th of a day's wage was what each of those coins were worth. 
they were almost of no value whatsoever. She put them in, and Jesus looked at all of them and said, this is awesome because she gave everything she had. She brought something. It wasn't about who has the biggest check. It's about who gives out of the abundance of their heart. I think of the woman who broke the vial over Jesus' head and, and, and anointed him and all of this expensive oil. Man, when you break the jar, <laughs> that's it. It's all running out everywhere. She had no intention of leaving with any of it. She brought all she had, and she left all that she had. And when they began to talk about, whoa, 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 man, he's up there. Hey, this oil here could be sold, and, and we could feed the poor. Now, that sounds like a Baptist if I've ever heard one in my life. Why do we spend so much money on this, that, and the other? We could have done something for the folks who are in need with that money. And Jesus looked at them, and he said, let her alone. Mark 14 says she has done what she could. And then he made them a promise. He said, wherever the gospel is preached, they will tell of what she's done. And here we are 2,000 years later, and we're still talking about this woman. We don't know her name either. And we don't know who the wise men were, but we know what they brought. It's intentional. It can be expensive. It also can be controversial. <coughs> can be controversial for a couple of reasons. One, because of the place where they're going. They came to town to worship the Savior, but he's not in the temple. And they came to town to worship the King of Kings, and he's not in a palace. So the place is one thing. you got to remember that this business of going to a building and calling that church, and I, I, I know uh, there are a lot of people that they've gotten beyond that. Uh, that was a lot more in my generation than a lot of yours, but we still have some of that today. It is not about the building. It is not about a place that you go. It is about being in the presence of God. And I don't care if you have the nicest building in all of the world. I'm in awe at these cathedrals. I've been in the one at Duke University and and heard the organ and all of that playing in there. And it is so beautiful. And it's just awestruck. But I can tell you, you can have church in there every week. But if you don't have the presence of the Savior of the world, you are wasting your time. What we need in our churches more than anything is a fresh outpouring of the Spirit of God. The participants also... That can make, a, for a, make for a controversy. They're pagan in nature. They're not Jews. But when the angel told the shepherds, look, this is going to be good news for all people. This is not for Jews. This is not for Gentiles. This is for all people. For he is the Savior of the world. And I think it's interesting that the first worship service after that that we read about, people that couldn't be more non-Jewish show up to lead the way. But they're seeking the truth. I think this is so interesting. I mentioned it already, but they, they were scientists of sorts, and they had a curiosity wanting to know things. They, you know, I'm, I'm, I have that kind of curiosity, and I'm a long ways from, from having that kind of intellect. 
I don't know everything. I want to know everything, though. So I'm constantly reading. And, and I went to bed last night, and I was reading a book right before I went to sleep, got into bed, couldn't go to sleep, had to get back up and read some more. It's, it's, it's just crazy. But I can just tell you, when you start to seek the truth and you really want to know the truth, it will lead you where it led them every time, and it led them to God. You know, nowadays, I know we have a lot of atheistic scientists, but if you go back and look at men like Galileo and Kepler and Newton and, and Kelvin uh, and, and uh, Copernicus, uh, Pascal, uh, you go back and look at those men, they were diehard scientists and they were brilliant scholars in the field of science. But where did all of that lead them? It led them to God. They became children of God, or they started out as children of God and became scientists because of their curiosity for God. So when you seek the truth, if you really seek it with all your heart, as Jeremiah 29, 13 tells us, he says, when you seek me with all your heart, that is when you will find me. If you seek the truth that way, you will find God. You may say, well, what if they'd have sought it and not found him? Well, we wouldn't call them wise men. We'd call them dumb men. And we got a lot world full of those today. Some people say, you know, I just can't find God. I remember Dr. Vance Havner said one time, the reason most people can't find God is the same reason a bank robber can't find a cop. He's not looking for one. Oh, I mean, we might venture off into theology sometimes. We might be like Herod looking for some personal advantage in some sort. It might be curiosity that gets the best of us. But I can tell you when we really pour out our heart looking for the truth of God and we seek Him with all of our heart and we let Him draw us, even if it's 800 miles from home, then we get to experience his presence. I think about later on when Jesus is teaching. He tells them that I'm the bread of heaven. Well, the Jews were there listening to him that day. This is in uh, Mark, I forgot the chapter now. Oh, no, John chapter 6. I'm sorry. He says, I am the bread from heaven. And the Jews got all upset in John chapter 6. Jesus looked at them because they were saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. He's talking about he's the bread of heaven. And they actually said, is this not Joseph's son? We've met Joseph and his mother. They're, they're earthlings. <laughs> they didn't come from heaven. We know them. They, they, they just lived down there just outside of Ellenboro. Really, they, they were saying, well, we know all about them. Jesus looked at them and he says, I came from heaven. And then in the next verse he says, and by the way, no man or no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And that's the man that I will raise up on the last day. Unless God, the Father, draws you to Jesus Christ, I can tell you, you're never, ever going to find him. That's such a hard truth for me. I ask the brothers that come in every Sunday and pray for me to pray for me this morning, and I appreciate it. 
I feel the power of those prayers this morning, but for the last few weeks when I get in a pulpit, I am hit with a massive amount of discouragement. And I look out and I see people missing and some I just like, wow, why, why are they not here? And where are they? I haven't seen them in months, weeks, some of them, whatever. Man, I'm just telling you, <laughs> even though I know that until God speaks to their heart and draws them and convicts them and they're willing to seek Him with all of their heart, there is nothing in this world I can do. I can't dance fast enough to keep you here. I can't preach a certain way. Uh, it, it may get you here, but it won't keep you. That old saying, what you win them with is what you win them to. So if you came here for something that maybe we don't have anymore, then when that's gone, you will, you'll be gone too. But when you come here and you say, we've come to worship Him. We've come to worship God. You won't need to impress me today, Pastor Mike. I'll pray for you. If you feel discouraged at all and feel like you're not getting through to me, you are, and I'm listening, but look, I didn't come for you. I came to worship God, and there's nothing in this world going to stop me. Yeah, and I met some hypocrites, and I met some people that they're not serious about what they believe, but I didn't come to see them. I came here to meet with God, and I came here to worship Him. But boy, it does break my heart. It does break my heart. I, I got to tell you, it's, it's, sometimes it just is tough. It's controversial worship that's fit for a king because of the place and participants. Also because of the person that they're worshiping. They're not here to worship Herod. Verse 3 says, he was troubled in all of Jerusalem with him. I bet he was troubled. And that word trouble there is not nearly enough to, to give us what the meaning of the Greek is. We're talking about the Greek word means he was throwing things. He is really upset. But imagine this. What if you went to the White House and said, we've come today to worship the one who is born president of the United States. Now, there's enough confusion up there already. But that would throw them for a whirlwind. What if Herod the Great, what, one, of, one of his wives, he'd been married nine times. He killed one of them. And he killed his mother-in-law. And he killed three of his sons, Alexander, Aristobulus, and another one, I don't remember his name. Killed three of his own sons. He, he's, a, he's a stem winder, buddy. But what if somebody came to him and said, uh, Hey, uh, Herod, uh, there's somebody here who wants to worship the king of the Jews. <laughs> and he goes to the door and he finds out it's not him. I thought I was the king of the Jews. I got this job from Rome. They gave it to me. I, I actually paid for it with money to get it. I'm a vassal king. I have to pay to be here. I rule a little piece of land that's about the size of Rutherford County, but I feel big and, and, and bold and mighty, and these people come here, and they're wanting to worship the king of, of the Jews. I'm the king of the Jews. And they come and say, though, no, 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 no. We're here to worship the one that was born king of the Jews. He didn't have to get voted in. He didn't have to buy his way in. He was born that way because he is the son of God. 
Man, that'll get you every time. I, I'll never forget. We took some our youth one time to a place, and a guy was giving his testimony, and I don't remember his name, but he was a football coach, and I think his team had just won the national championship. I don't know. But he said something that I thought was kind of funny and also eye-opening. He said, it wasn't long after we won the national champ, my wife called national championship. Said, my wife told me one day, says that Sports Illustrated is on the phone and they want to talk to you. And he said, I was getting out of the shower or something. I don't remember what it was, but he was telling him, make sure you hang on, hang on, hang on. Let me get there. And he had two or three things. He said, and I was rushing around because I couldn't go to the phone right then. And man, finally I got there and picked up that phone and said, hello. Sports Illustrated. He said, and their question was, would you like to renew your subscription? That's kind of a kick in the teeth. Kind of like Herod when they said, we didn't come to worship you. We came to worship the real king of the Jews. It'll be intentional, expensive, controversial maybe. It'll also be passionate says in verse 10, they rejoice with exceedingly great joy. Great joy. You know, sometimes I think we have so dignified worship in our churches that maybe we're a little too dignified. Maybe we need to have some great joy. And, and I know we say sometimes, and I, I, I remember in every church I pastored, I've had people that, that said, I, I'm just not real expressive, and, and I, I'm just not outward. But inside, I can tell you, Pastor, you know, I rejoice in all that, but I kind of do it my own way. Maybe not all of them, but go to a softball game your church is playing in and have a bad umpire. I, I had a job one time. <laughs> I didn't get paid to do it. I volunteered to do it. I umpired women's softball. I want to tell you, now I've been shot with a high-powered rifle. I've been snake bit twice. I've been run over by a car that I was driving. I mean, I've been there. I've had a embolism in my heart. <laughs> I, I, I've it's, it's, it ain't cancer, <laughs> but that pales in comparison to coaching women's softball. If it's a church league, oh my goodness. I wouldn't do it again. I don't know enough judo to get out there for that one again. But I can just tell you, I think sometimes we get real expressive about a lot of things. But when it comes to God, we get a dose of dignified. And I think sometimes it's, and I'm not telling you what to do, but I, I, I just think, we ought to have some joy about serving and loving our Savior. Most people are naturally evangelistic about the one they worship. Really. You, you don't really have to get a course in evangelism. Whatever's important to people, do you notice they talk about it all the time? You know, they wear the Dallas Cowboys shirts and the Dallas Cowboy jackets. I can't blame them. Best team in all football. But whatever it is, they got a whole, I've known people had a whole room, a whole room of their house dedicated to Dale Earnhardt. 
And they'll tell you, you ought to go to the race, man. He's going to win. I think he's dead now. But I'm just saying, what, what, whatever it is that we really worship in our lives, we are naturally evangelistic about it. We don't need to take a course in how to tell people that the Dallas Cowboys won the Super Bowl. Of course, you'll have to be pretty old to remember that. But you don't need to, you didn't buy, you didn't have to buy a book to tell people that, 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 that I want to be more expressive and be able to communicate to people how crazy I am about my career. It'll come natural because you're speaking from your heart and you're talking about your God. You won't need any help. Last of all, really worship that's fit for a king is overwhelming. It says in verse 11 that when they came in and they saw the child and Mary, his mother. Didn't mention Joseph. I guess he was out getting some infamil or something. But when they saw the baby, they fell down. And let me tell you, that word is pip toe, not tip. Pipto is a word for falling down that means you fell down because you could no longer remain standing. It's a more than I just tripped. It's more than I, I just accidentally fell over something. No. It's a word that usually has a measure of con condemnation with it. The condemned sometimes were considered falling down uh, crying out for mercy. As a matter of fact, I'll give you a great example. In Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit about how much money they had given and tried to pretend to be something that they were not, it says that they fell down and died. And, and it, the same word is used for both of them. I, I'll tell you a better example, though, the one I really like. If you go over to Acts chapter 16, there's a Philippian jailer, and you remember what happened that night. Paul and Silas are in jail. They start having a worship service. The jail doors are shook open by the powerful hand of God, and the Philippian jailer knows if anybody escapes, I'm going to die. Paul says, everybody stay in your cells, stay in your cells. And when the Philippian jailer got there, the very same one most likely that had put the welts on their backs Paul comforts him and tells him with compassion. He says, hey, 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 settle down. It's okay. Don't harm yourself. We're all here. I, I, I kept him here. And it says that he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he asked the real question. Not about gravitational forces or origins of the universe he asked the question that you'll finally have to get around to what must I do to be saved man that's where we have to get eventually what must I do to be saved it says when they saw him they fell down and worshipped him not them but him not her. They worshiped him. They worshiped him. 
Man, this is how you worship a king. You have to kind of cut through the fluff. I'm just reviewing what we've learned today. You don't have to be a theological scholar. You got to be able to ignore a lot of junk that goes on around you. And you got to focus your attention on your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And don't come empty handed. Bring something. Sometimes it's not money that's the sacrifice for a lot of us. I, I, money, giving money to something has, is not a problem for me. I know it is for a lot of people. It's not a problem for me. What I have trouble giving is my will, my self-sufficiency. I was given away as a child early on. I was not an orphan, but I experienced some of that kind of life. And I, I can tell you, I grew up being very self-sufficient. I, I don't want to need anybody. <laughs> Man. And I did pretty good with that for a while. But I can tell you, God can put you in a place where you need Him. Where you need Him. And sometimes, my friend, that's what you need to bring. Not just your pocketbook. But bring an open mind and an open heart and a willingness to let God speak to you. Because I can tell you now, it's not going to make any difference in the world how I preach, what I preach, what we teach, what we sing, any of that. None of that is going to matter until God draws you to Him and you put your focus on Him and nothing else. Nothing else. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You so much. So much for teaching us today how to worship you. I pray, God, you'll help us, Lord. Help us, dear Heavenly Father, to be able to come with a sharp focus. Lord, an open mind, a willing heart, but Lord, a focus that's on you. Not the things that go on around us, God. Not the trivial foolishness, Lord. But I pray, God, that you would help us, Lord. Help us, God, to focus our attention on you. And God, we come right now praying. We pray for this offering today. So many people have never had a chance to say no. They've never had a chance to shrug it off, God. They've never had a chance to get their priorities out of order because they've never heard about you. And I pray, God, that you would use this money. Bless this offering, God. I pray that you would multiply it, Lord, and use it in a powerful way, God, to reach so many who've never once heard. And Lord, we can't help but pray for others, people we love with all our hearts. But God, you just don't seem to be real important to them. And God, we can't make you important for them. We can't change their heart, God. But we pray you will. We pray for deep conviction, God. And, and we know sometimes in life we have to hit roadblocks before we finally look up from being flat of our back, God. If that's what it takes, Lord. We love these people so much, God. We, we fearfully ask you right now 
to do whatever it takes, God, to reach them. We'd rather them, Lord, face difficulties and trials if it will help them to refocus their attention on You and help them to discover what is really important, God. Lord, we just come to You now and ask You, Father, please help us. Help us to digest what You've spoken to us today. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at servantsway.com or email us at office at servantsway.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.